Um, but I'm glad you bring that up because, uh, as I said at the beginning, this passage, um, this story shows up in all four Gospels, um, but this is my favorite version of it because in this version, it's not like a surprise. Jesus doesn't walk in and then suddenly like, what is happening here? I'm going to mess things up. It says that he uh, braided a cord of leather to create a whip, which means, I don't know if you've ever braided something. He sat there and he braided this thing. And the disciples are looking at him like, oh no, oh no, what's going to happen? And he goes and he like assaults people with it and flips tables and he sends the doves flying away and the money and the coins are flying everywhere. And I love this mental picture. Right? And, and there's this Jesus is then standing there in the rubble of what used to be uh, the money changers and those greedy people. And, and, and he starts preaching this message of, of renewal and rejuvenation and coming back to the way that things should be. And I love it because it's like active social disturbance. Um, but I had a really hard time with this passage this time through. It's funny because I've, I've uh, as of last month, I have been a pastor for 10 years now. So I've preached this passage a couple of times in the past 10 years. But in my research this time through, it was different. I noticed a few details that then sent me down a few rabbit holes that sent me down reading some old ancient Jewish texts and some historical accounts. And the whole story kind of changed for me when I put it into context. And so I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do the same thing for you today. So I'm going to try to put this story in context. Because I think a lot of our mental pictures are informed by artists' renditions of this. And we imagine there being, you know, 60 people or so around. And um, anyway... I want to give you a little bit of historical context and take you on a little journey, and hopefully you can see the story in a new way, too. So we're in Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is by far the largest city in the region, both in terms of square footage and in terms of population. Now, when I say that, your minds are probably immediately thinking like New York City, Philadelphia, London, Paris, big modern cities but it's not, okay? We are talking about roughly one square mile is the old city of Jerusalem in the first century. Um, the, the, Jerusalem is up on a mountaintop. There's a couple of these different districts which they've kind of slowly expanded. The modern city of Jerusalem is much bigger than this, but this is first century Jerusalem here. This city houses somewhere between 25 and 75,000 people. So for your comparison, that is roughly the population of somewhere in between Pottstown and Reading. Pottstown is 25,000 people. That's the low end of the estimate for Jerusalem. The high end 75 is what Reading is. So we're not talking about New York City here. We are talking about Pottstown slash Reading. In fact, just also to give you a, 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 a sort of physical picture about what one square mile looks like, this is one square mile of Pottstown, right here. Going up from, uh, from the cemetery down here, we don't even include the hill school, right? We are like half of Pottstown proper right here is one square mile. So imagine 
All of Jerusalem, the entire city that we are watching right here is happening right here in this blue square. Yes, lots of people live in Jerusalem right now. Way more than 25,000 now, yes. Now, the Jews in those days and today are a scattered people from centuries of conquering and of being uh, enslaved and sent out into the world. And so uh, they are a people that are all over the place until holidays happen, and especially a holiday like Passover, which is where we are in this story. The, the festival of Passover is when we're celebrating independence. It's basically Independence Day. It is when we are freed from slavery in Egypt, and so it is all about fun and food and family. It's all full of games. It's this like raucous uh, celebration. If they had fireworks in those days, they'd be lighting them off. But imagine like all of the best food comes out. There's vendors, there's musicians, there's bands. Um, this is not one of those solemn holidays where you come and you give your atonement sacrifice. This is like, this is a party holiday. Okay. <clears throat> so during this time, Jerusalem could see an influx of people somewhere between 40 to 70,000 extra people. Okay extra people going in to this square, this rectangle, 40 to 70,000 people extra that don't live there normally going in to this square. Again, to help you, because I have a hard time with big numbers, they basically don't mean anything. This is 43,000 people right here in Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. Anybody here ever been to a sold out Phillies game? It's wild. No, that's not us. We were not in a drone above the stadium. We sat right here. It was a great day. No. Um, this is 43,000 people. And if you've ever been to a Phillies game, it's the same kind of atmosphere that you'd have during uh, Passover without the cheesesteaks because that is not kosher. So imagine one to two stadiums worth of people descending on one quarter of Pottstown, okay? Are you getting a sense of the crowdedness, of the smushedness of all of these people shoulder to shoulder? And where do these pilgrims go when they come to Jerusalem? They go to the temple, which again, is this little thing right here, okay? It's, it's at the top of the mountain, and it is, uh, it is divided in this way. This is the temple proper. This is like the Jewish men can go right here, and only the priests can go here. And out here is where all the Gentiles and the women can be. So out in... Um, <clears throat> Out in uh, this space is where you'd have all of the people, okay? And because this is a, there are people from scattered all over the place, they're all coming here with different currency. They're uh, traveling with different goods that they want to trade in. And there are laws in the Bible about what kind of sacrifice you can give in the temple. There are certain clean animals, certain unclean animals. So imagine you had to walk for a week to get there. You're probably not going to bring a pair of doves with you from home, right? Can you imagine walking through the desert for a week with two doves, hoping to God that they survive the trip? 
So no, of course not. You come with a pocket full of change of whatever currency that you have in that land, and you come to the temple, and clearly they have to have some kind of centralized system. They've got a government to run. They can't just accept everything. So they created this system where they had one type of currency, the Tyrian shekel, which was the most reliable at the time, and they had you know, a bunch of pre-blessed animals that you can come and buy. It's a very efficient, effective um, system. So they had money changers all throughout here um, who would come and do your exchanges. Um, they, they would do all the calculations. They would tell you how much things cost and, you know, in your Egyptian money, in your Babylonian money, in your whatever money. Um, and when I've heard this preached before, the preachers are always so quick to condemn these money changers, to accuse them of being these uh, scoundrels who are skimming off the top, who are ripping people off, who are taking advantage of poor widows and orphans, extorting them of money. But honestly, there's no evidence of this. There's no evidence of this within the gospel narratives themselves. In fact, there are Jewish writings from this time which lay out exactly what the money changers had to do. They were barely paid, if at all. Most of them were volunteers. There was really strict oversight from overseers who would come by and count your books and make sure you're not skimming anything off the top. There were like set uh, rates of transfer. Uh, there's archaeological evidence of large permanent booths in this area. Like this is not just some shady backdoor operation where you walk in and some guy pulls out a dove from a trench coat. This is like boring bank teller sort of situation. So let's reel it back, okay? Just to put it all back in perspective. We are talking about the city, a city the size of downtown Pottstown that normally has 25 to 70,000 people. And it is suddenly teeming with one to two baseball stadiums worth of extra excited tourists. At any given moment, thousands of them are crowded into this marketplace. And, oh, yeah, that marketplace, by the way, is roughly the size of, of uh, the shopping center where uh, the Walmart is on Route 100. Okay? You all know where the Walmart is on 100? This is the Walmart, and these are all the little stores over here, right? The Arby's is over here and whatnot. That's the size of the entire Temple Mount. So imagine, if you will, 40,000 people descending on that space. And of course, we have to exclude the temple itself, Walmart, which, I mean, how, how fitting is that? This is definitely our temple. So tens of thousands of people milling around right here in the parking lot of Walmart. I hope you're starting to see how crowded this situation is, how chaotic this situation is, how loud this situation is. And this is the backdrop of our story today. You know, I've always labored under the assumption that Jesus walked into a courtyard with like a, maybe a couple hundred people in it or a couple dozen people. Uh, and he violently drove out everyone who was buying and selling in that temple and then stood up on a soapbox and started preaching to them about the right way to do things. But look at this. Imagine tens of thousands of people in that courtyard 
there's this overwhelming din of shouting people trying to uh, exchange currencies. There's, there's the constant braying of animals everywhere. There's, there's the sound of music just lingering over the top of everything. It is loud. The smells are overwhelming. The sights are overwhelming. Jesus can't shut that whole thing down. No one could shut that whole thing down. If Caesar himself walked into one half of it with a legion of troops and started stabbing people, it would take an hour before the people on the other side even knew that he was there. So this is not a story about Jesus' triumphant righteous anger. It's a story of a man shouting into a hurricane. I've read lots of academic scholars who say that this this whole story probably never happened because there's an extra legion of Roman troops in Jerusalem at this time. And if Jesus really did cause that kind of riot in the temple, then he would have been arrested and probably executed that night. So they think it didn't happen. But I think that maybe there's another explanation to this. And that explanation is that no one noticed him. <laughs> that it happened but it didn't have any impact that was noticeable. That Sure, maybe the 50 or 60 people in his little corner of the parking lot over here caught wind of what was happening. I'll bet you those money changers that he you know, wrecked their day probably went home and had some things to, t to think about and talk to their spouses about. But for the most part, Jesus didn't change anything. The cogs of the system kept spinning and spinning like nothing had happened. And like I said, this has always been one of my favorite verses because I really like when Jesus is mad about the same stuff as I am. It makes me feel justified. <laughs> you know, we've got this story where there's allegedly religious leaders doing bad things. There's the poor being taken advantage of by the rich. These are all things that I get mad about every single day. And so to see Jesus mad about it, he's out there, he's making a difference. I love it. And so when I've put myself into the story before, I've put myself in there as a disciple who sees Jesus doing this and just goes and flips other tables too. I'm going to make my own cord of whips. I'm going to go off and continue to rage with Jesus in this riot. That's where I have put myself in this story, but I'm starting to see it differently. I'm starting to see the incident differently, and I'm starting to see my own place in the story differently, too. I don't see this as a story of brute strength anymore. What I see instead is righteous rage melting into a puddle of cynical apathy, at least personally especially after seeing how little our words and actions seem to matter when we're up against these massive forces. Just once again, to compare those two, you can move the camera back. We're not, we're done with that. I think especially, and I asked this on Facebook this week as well, because I've been struggling with this, that I care so, so very deeply about the environment. This is something that fills my heart and my mind constantly. I am always reading about uh, what is happening in the world. 
I am keenly aware of the situation that our planet is in and about how little control I actually have over it. I am aware that 100 companies produce 71% of all of the greenhouse gases that are destroying life on Earth. But it's okay because, you know, we've all changed to LED bulbs and everything's going to be fine, right? Because uh, we carpool instead. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do my part, right? I recycle. I have worms in my kitchen so I don't make too much waste. In the garage. Sorry, they used to be in the kitchen. Now they have to live outside in the garage. <laughs> I take them into the kitchen when she's not watching. So No, I don't. But at the end of the day, I feel like Jesus turning over a table or two in a complex that is so overwhelmingly large that it hardly registers. And at times like those, I feel helpless. I feel like, why am I even trying? Sure, this is fine for me, but I feel like I am trying to patch holes in a sinking ship while the people at the helm are recklessly running into even more icebergs. Like, why am I even trying to patch this ship? Shouldn't I just enjoy my time before we sink? And it's times like these that I hear the words of my brilliant friend, Kendra, who said to me once in a podcast we were recording, that the point of speaking justice is not to be so inspiring that everyone in the room suddenly has their hearts and minds changed forever and they go rushing out the doors to go fix all of the broken systems in the world. The point is not to be so inspirational that the world changes because of a sermon or a speech or something like that. The point well, because honestly, that has never happened in the history of the world. But even if it did, even if it were possible, we're fickle creatures. And we'd lose our enthusiasm. And if your movement is based on enthusiasm, then it's, you know, got a couple of weeks in it before it's gone. The point instead is to be continually speaking justice so that it seeps into our collective subconscious. The point is to become a sort of underlying factor in, in the collective consciousness of society so that um, people don't even know when they first heard about this thing, right? Because we all have this in our subconscious. We are all making decisions based on underlying assumptions that we don't remember when we learned about. Right, so when was the first time you learned about racism? You don't know, probably. When was the first time you heard that our planet was in danger because of our actions? You don't know. You remember the moment that you first learned about it, yeah? You confronted McDonald's? Of course you did. Of course you did. But when a message becomes repeated so many times, 
it sinks down from like that part of your conscious mind where you have to keep considering it and thinking about it. It sinks down into the subconscious. It goes down into the groundwater and it just becomes a part of the conversation to the point where people don't even consider where it came from. It's just always there now. Like I think about the fact that uh, in the past 20 years, how uh, I've watched the U.S. go from pretending like LGBTQ people don't exist to there being rage about a trans woman being on a can of Bud Light. And now that conversation, because it has just been continually added to the conversation, is now just in the groundwater. And now you just have to consider this. In every election cycle, we have to know what a person's stance is on this, that, and the other. And you're considering these things that you would not have considered 20 years ago because it, people who have been passionate about these justice issues have not stopped talking about them. So it is not about one big action. It is about a million tiny actions from people who refuse to melt down into a puddle of apathy, like I sure would love to do. And now, of course, there's pushback from people um, who have very subconscious messaging that is different from this subconscious messaging. Um, but the point is still valid. We have to continue speaking truth and justice into the world, even when it feels like we are too small to matter. So every week, of, uh, of this series, we're asking ourselves where we fit, where we fit into the Holy Week drama. And we're doing that partially through looking at uh, works of art that depict each day of Jesus, and then looking at these works of art and looking at the people in them and the faces they're making. And we are putting ourselves into these stories. So given all the backstory that I've given you, I want to read a monologue from the perspective of someone who watched Jesus flip these tables. And I want you to look for yourself in the scene. Where do you fit in? Where do you relate? And then I want to give us a few minutes to share as well. <clears throat> so we're going to go in to this fella, this guy. Because you see, this is what I was afraid of. Tensions have been so high since we got to Jerusalem, and I've seen the way that the Roman soldiers have been watching us, just waiting to pull out their swords the moment that someone gets in Jesus' face. But this, oh, I never expected that Jesus would be the one to start the trouble. This is the guy who sat with children and sick people and talked with outsiders for the past three years. I have seen him keep his cool in situations where anyone else would have lost it. I have seen him maintain his calm while people insulted him and his mother and who used awful and unspeakable words. There has been an inner peace that seemed limitless. So what happened? Who is this revolutionary and what did he do with my peaceful rabbi? This is it. This is it. 
I'm afraid that this is the beginning of the end. This is when the tides turn against us. This is the excuse that the leaders need to finally put an end to Jesus and this movement. Come on, Jesus. Is this really the way to win over people to your cause by causing a stir in the temple? I mean, isn't it the Romans and the wealthy politicians that we should be targeting? If we're going to start a riot, we should be at the palace, not the temple. But instead, he's out here yelling at people who are just trying to do their jobs, who are just trying to help these pilgrims follow the laws of the temple. These money changers, these animal merchants, they're mostly volunteers. I mean, sure, the exchange rates have gotten out of hand recently, but they don't set inflation. They aren't responsible for this messed up economy. They're just doing their jobs, just trying to do their best like the rest of us. And yet, I get it. I've been angry too. Not at the people who are trapped in the system, but at the system itself. The way things are, I'm just so tired of the way that things are. Will anything ever change? How can we insignificant peasants hope to have any change in a system this large and out of our control? <sighs> well, maybe. Just maybe. Maybe if we can look at our part in the whole. Maybe if we could see just how we prop up this system because of our fear. Or for those of us who benefit from it, maybe because of our greed. Maybe if we're able to search ourselves, to cleanse the temple inside of us, that we'll be able to change this world for the good. So I'll stay by his side, no matter where this mess leads, because I have a feeling he understands how desperate this situation as best as anyone does. And he has a plan to flip the whole system on his head. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to change things. We're going to change things or die trying. So friends, where do you see yourselves in this narrative?